Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. In the middle of last week, I started to think, how am I going to fill the beginning part of podcasts going forward? I had devised a plan for the core, the main central meat of the show with the move into preparation for those joining these season resumption leagues. But what were we going to do with the beginning of the show? I don't have to do as many promos because we're working on really cool ad spots. Shout out to Luke and his amazing work behind the scenes on all that stuff. So what's the beginning of the show now besides just saying hello? And then I remembered that when the NBA is 37 days away, News happens. We got news every day. We talked about Davis Bertans opting out of playing in Orlando on yesterday's podcast. We'll pick up where we left off on that front, and then we'll segue into our next handful of teams as we prepare for the season resumption leagues, if you guys are going to join them, which I will be. But first... Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Vespers. This is a HoopBall presentation, hoop-ball.com. The website, at HoopBallFantasy on Twitter. I am at Dan Vespers, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. A welcome to all of those listening to the podcast for the first time. You're catching us in a weird time of year, but probably a good time. Because if you're listening in and you're tuning in now for the first time, it means you're probably thinking, how do I get back into Fantasy NBA today, or NBA in general when there's only eight games coming up. Well, lucky for you, there will be eight game leagues, and lucky for you, we're breaking them all down. So again, that's at Dan Vespers on Twitter. By the way, hit me up if you guys want to get involved in our sales or DFS operations here at HoopBall, at Dan Vespers. Again, uh, if you're a salesperson and you have daytime availability, mainly Pacific time call hours, that's how that would generally work, hit me up. And if you're a DFS person, you don't have to be a pro yet, but you think you got what it takes Bug me. I'll get you in touch with Micah Patria, who's running our DFS Today podcast when that comes back here in a couple of weeks, and he'll put you through the ringer. Guess I can't say the ringer today. Villain of the day on Twitter was Bill Simmons. If you haven't looked at some of that stuff, go do a little deep dive. Climb on down the rabbit hole, see what turns up. In terms of NBA news, we were talking about Davis Bertans yesterday and how I thought he was actually making the right choice, but it seems like uh, the locker room reaction is the exact opposite. And I probably should have seen that coming because at the end of the day, the very short version of this is he's not joining his team. He is healthy and he's not joining his team. He is putting his future ahead of his present. 
The one thing that I don't think I discussed on yesterday's podcast that perhaps I should have was, well, we talked about ROI, the fact that he's giving up probably about six, $700,000 this year for most likely a $30, $40 million payday or maybe more, depending on how much teams feel a laser sight sharpshooter is worth these days. But now the question becomes, would his Washington teammates welcome him back? If he's, as it appears now, creating this feeling like he's leaving them hanging, would they want him back next year? Is that the kind of basketball player they'd want on their team? And that's not at all fair to Bertans, who would be risking everything for very little. Although now we've heard that the NBA and the Players Association have agreed to put in place an enhanced insurance plan for players that suffer career-ending or COVID-19-related injuries because of this weird restart. So maybe there's a reason for him to come back. Did he know about that when he made his decision? Did he make his decision before this enhanced insurance situation played itself out? We don't know. Does it matter to him? Like, is it is it too late for him to change his mind? We don't know. It seems like he's pretty well set in it. Evan Fournier, who's on the team he would be chasing, not even a teammate, called him out. But now there's a Twitter beef between Davis Bertans and Evan Fournier, so that's fun. Welcome back to the drama of the NBA, everybody. We missed it. We missed it. But the Wizards presumably were going to be one of the teams offering him a contract, and now the thought is, if he's the only Wizard that doesn't go, does that put him in a sour spot with his teammates going into next year? If they brought him back, this might take a team out of the running. Maybe he thought about that. Maybe he thought, you know what, if I do this, I'm going to anger my Wizards teammates, and they're not going to want me back. And that's going to take one team, perhaps, out of the bidding for my services. The only way this changes is if someone above Bertans in the pecking order on the Wizards also chooses not to go. Which is basically Beal or Wall, and we know John Wall's not playing anyway. So basically, Bradley Beal. Rui Hachimura? Is he above him in the pecking order? I doubt it. Rookie. Thomas Bryant? Meh. Basically, Beal would have to not go. And then everybody would be like, okay, I guess it's fine that Davis didn't come. Because our leader didn't come down here, which is basically like, what's the point? But Beal's going to go. We know how he is. He plays. Almost regardless of situation, he plays. If he's missing games, which he missed a handful this year, you know it's a big deal. So he'll go. And Davis will be on the outs but he'll make a ton of money with probably some other team. We also learned a little bit later on yesterday that Trevor Ariza would not be joining the Blazers in Orlando for a very different reason. I don't actually know why we got the information we did. This feels like a really private thing, but perhaps Ariza just wanted everybody to know that he wanted to be there. But what it's looking like is that Trevor Ariza is in a custody battle for his 12-year-old son, and his ex-wife was granting him, I guess he gets one month of time with his kid, and his wife gets to pick the month, is the impression I'm getting. And she picked the month that he would have to be in Orlando. 
So Ariza, I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot about what went on there, but it feels contentious based on the way that's playing out in the public eye. We don't know anything that happened behind the scenes, so we're not going to make any judgment on either side of whatever's going on in Ariza's personal life, but that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty nasty move. Uh so I'm thinking these two probably don't get along very well. I don't know what he did to her. She feels wronged, he feels wronged, whatever. But Ariza's saying, you know what, I can't go to Orlando. This is my one chance to to spend time with my child. I have to take it. That's a hard choice, man, but he made the right one. I think we can all agree he made the right choice. Also yesterday, Corey Brewer signed with the Sacramento Kings in a move that nobody saw coming or will care about. Back on the Ariza front, I would say that this changes the trajectory of the Blazers a lot, but they're expecting to get Zach Collins back. And so if Ariza was going to be playing the three with Mello at the four, this probably just moves Mello down and allows Gary Trent to likely play a little bit more. Maybe Anthony Simons sees a little bit more playing time. So I don't think you're going to see any one player really step into Ariza's shoes because Blazers are kind of making a swap. A bigger guy. They got bigger and slower. Uh, maybe not slower. Ariza's pretty slow in his old age here. They got bigger, but they didn't really lose the number of players that they wanted to run out there for 30 minutes a game. It's not like 30 minutes just popped up. Ariza was probably going to be playing, what, 33, 34, 35? He, he was logging pretty big minutes with the Blazers. And Collins probably, what, 28 to 30? So maybe five, six, seven minutes ends up floating around. Maybe a couple minutes come away from Carmelo Anthony because he just can't play the three the entire ballgame. They'd be way too slow. So there will be some, but not a ton. And don't worry, we're going to be getting to the Blazers here shortly. They might, they might very well come up on today's pro podcast, depending on what order we go in here. All right, so that's your news at the beginning. Let's segue into what do we make of these teams, how to adjust what we're doing as we look towards the resumption leagues. Friday, we did the Lakers, the Clippers, the Nuggets. Yesterday, we did the Jazz, the Thunder, and the Rockets. Today, we embark upon our adventure with the Dallas Mavericks. The one thing that's kind of nice coming out of this layoff is that these teams are largely healthy now. So if we were worried about Luka Doncic being banged up, which he was this year, played in only 54 ball games, he should be coming out of this in much better shape. If we were worried about Kristaps Porzingis, he'd been playing extraordinarily well prior to the shutdown. No reason to think that that peters out in any large-scale fashion. Seth Curry was banged up going into the break. He'll probably be back. We know that Dwight Powell, Courtney Lee, who hurt his calf, not that he was playing anyway, and Jalen Brunson are all out for the year. So we have a pretty good idea of what's going on in Dallas coming back from this break. So let's just start at the top and work our way down the list. Kristaps Porzingis finished at number 23 over the entire season. He was better than that for most of the second half of the year. In fact, he was easily inside the top 10. And even had stretches where he was inside the top five. Porzingis, to his credit, for the Mavericks' final 20 games prior to the shutdown, averaged 22 points, 10 rebounds, three threes, two blocks, a steal, 
two assists, 44% from the field, 83 at the free throw line, only 1.6 turnovers. He was terrific. First round numbers from Porzingis. And I don't know that those change all that much. You know, the, the makeup of the team doesn't change a whole lot. He's very much the second scoring option on this club that for stretches this year really was a two-horse operation. Question is, who has the stones to take Porzingis? The Mavericks finished this regular season at 40-27, and 27, a game and a half back of the Rockets, and the Thunder, you better believe they want to get out of the seven or eight spots. They're not falling down to the eight spot. Memphis seven games behind them. But there's an opportunity here for Dallas to get into a, a pocket of teams like Utah, Oklahoma City, Houston, Denver. I know Denver was good this year, but don't try to sell me on Denver being as scary as the Clippers or the Lakers. And so the Mavericks, I think they play hard. They've been good on the road, which tells you that they should be pretty good here on a neutral site. They were not slowed by road. In fact, they were better. Two and a half games better on the road than they were at home. They were good in their division. They were pretty good in the conference. There's a lot to like about Dallas as kind of a sneaky team. In fact, when you look at how they performed this year, their, their general performance on the court, they should have been better than 13 games over 500. They lost some tight ones and they won some blowouts. They actually had the third best point differential of any team in the Western Conference at 6.1 behind just the Lakers and Clippers. So the Mavericks could have very easily been the three seed this year if Luka doesn't miss a few games here and there, if Kristaps doesn't take his time off. I mean, mostly you can you can largely blame it on Luka not being there. If he's there the entire season, they're probably the three seed right now, or at the very least the four or five. So I think they're going to come out of this break playing well. I think they're going to come out of this break playing relatively hard. I think you probably see Kristaps take one of the eight games off at least. I don't know if Luka takes one of the eight games off. He might. I The fact that there's a question mark there that he might just play all eight, you can probably just assess him as though he will be. I love Porzingis. Uh, he's been incredible. The block rate ha has been magical. The fact that he's been able to pile up blocks and threes and scoring and rebounding and get steals on low turnovers... He was brilliant. I mean, you look at the games they played leading up to the, the layoff. His last five games prior to the shutdown, he had 18 blocks. I mean, he was averaging almost four blocks a game over that stretch. He was on his way back to what he was doing in New York two years ago, which is closer to two and a half blocks a game, but with a better rebounding rate. So things were improving. I don't know that he can keep up the... You know, 84% free throw shooting. He did that his rookie year. He hasn't been anywhere near that the last three seasons, but maybe the 44% shooting from the field that he was putting together was seemingly sustainable. That's pretty darn close to his career mark. I, I just, I don't see a reason for him to do less than he was doing prior to the break, which puts him as a late first-round guy that probably isn't going to be drafted as a late first-round guy. He could be a late first-round guy next year. Luca, on the other hand, is sort of a weird story because on the season, he was number 24, but the first two months of the year, he was a top eight guy. And then the end of the year, he was a top 75 guy. So which Luca is it? 
And what were the real differences between the beginning of the season and the end of the season? The real difference? Free throw shooting. I mean, it's almost the only change. Over the entire year, he averaged about 29 points, 9 boards, and 9 assists. Over the final roughly 20 games of the year, Doncic was at 28, 8, and 8. So down 1 point, 1 rebound, 1 assist. That's not the difference between top 10 and top 75. The difference between top 10 and top 75 is that the first two months of the year, he was taking eight, nine free throws a game and shooting 80%, which is close to league average, meaning he was not a net negative in that department. And over the final 20 games, he was taking nine free throws a game and shooting 67%, which made him one of the worst free throw volume guys in the NBA over that stretch. I mean, you know, you're talking about a situation there where one category took a guy from roughly top 10 and dropped him six rounds. Over the final 20 to 25 games this year, Giannis, who shot 67% on 10 free throws a game, Gobert, who shot 64% on seven free throws per game, Andre Drummond, who shot 51% on five free throws per game, and Luka Doncic were basically in that same grouping of guys that were just straight tanking your percentage. Over the final 25 games this year, no one that had that type of negative free throw impact was inside the top 30. Giannis was the closest at number 32. Hassan Whiteside was in the ballpark over that stretch, but he only took 3.7 free throws a game. And so that's what allowed him to stay up among the top tier guys. So it's damn hard, especially over a smaller sample size, to maintain upper level value when you have a category where you are quite literally losing the category for a team every single week. And if it's Roto, for the year. Even worse. You know, there's these these anchor categories we talk about so often on the podcast. They're very real. There's almost no one in the NBA that was in any other category that was having that kind of negative impact the way that Luka and Giannis and Gobert and Drummond were having in free throws over those last month and a half, two months of basketball. So what the hell, which Luka comes back from the break? That's the question here. And when that question is hanging over us, I tend to say, let someone else take the risk there. It's not like he's going to fall in drafts. It's not like Whiteside this year who was falling. And we said, look, even if his free throw shooting is horrible, he's still probably going to hit his ADP. And then the question is, how far above it could he go? Well, when Zach Collins got hurt, the answer was way the hell above it. With Luka, you know, he was he finished at number 24 in nine-category leagues. He's probably going to get drafted ahead of that. And we already saw him post this top 75 stretch. So, like, there, there's very little room in front of where Luka's going to get drafted. He's probably going to get picked inside the top 15 in resumption drafts. He's probably going to get picked inside the top 15 next year also. And if everything hits, he could be a top 10 guy. 
But if free throws slip or field goal percent slips or anything else isn't quite the same usage as it was, there's just so many ways that things could end up on the wrong side of that top 15 pick. If his ADP is 15 and the highest he could go for a year is 9 and the lowest he could go is, we saw it, 75 for a multi-month stretch, that's not a great bet. There's a chance. Every bet has a chance, but it's a long shot. And so in situations like that, I normally end up saying, well, we're just not going to draft this guy. Yeah, we would obviously draft him if he fell into the 20s and 30s because then you create a a much more even window on the front and back end, but he ain't falling that far. It's just not happening. What about the more fringy guys on Dallas? Well, prior to the shutdown and prior to his own uh, injury, Seth Curry was actually performing the best of anybody else on the Mavs. Over the final 20 games he played, Seth Curry was hitting three-pointers at an ungodly clip. 17 points, 3.3 three-pointers a game on 56% shooting from the field. He is his brother's brother. He's a Curry. The forgotten Curry, but damn, he's a knockdown shooter. I would take a chance on Seth Curry. It seemed like they liked what he was bringing as a floor spacer. He doesn't do many things wrong. He's going to have to hit a bunch of threes if he wants to hold his value. And he's going to probably be in some kind of uh, battle with Tim Hardaway Jr. for those perimeter touches. But they seem to be ramping him up as the season was ramping down. Tim Hardaway Jr. and Maxi Kleber are the only other guys on Dallas that I would think I would consider at this point. Although, again, you're looking at Dorian Finney-Smith who was 129 over the last three months of the year, 150 for the season. Even if you shave off eight teams and take 27% of the names out in front of him, I'm still not sure he's a guy I would use. Delon Wright never really settled into a role. So, to me, you're looking at the names that we just listed. Kristaps, Luka, obviously. Seth Curry, Tim Hardaway Jr., Maxi Kleba. Where do we take those guys, if at all? I think you can consider all of them. Tim Hardaway, he was getting starts alongside Porzingis and Curry. He was just chucking away, which isn't isn't nothing. You know, he was inside the top 90 over his last 25 games. Over the last 10, 11 games, he was inside the top 80. Delon Wright actually posted a tiny bit of value in there, but I think Luca might have missed a game and... There's some weird stuff going on. I, I'm not I'm not going to do the DeLon Wright thing in these eight games. He's, he's really more of the plotting type. Uh, but I think you're taking Seth Curry as one of your later round picks. There's, there's decent upside there in the percentages and the three-pointers. There's enough to take a look at it. Kleba, there's enough upside there as a big man. He's not going to have a massive role. He's not going to rebound a ton with Porzingis grabbing most of them. But I'll get you some threes and some blocks kind of a quiet producer. These are all late-round guys, and in terms of what order I would consider taking these late-round dudes, it would be Seth Curry, then Kleba, and then Hardaway, mostly because I just don't trust him Hardaway not to go, you know, four for 20 some night. Even if he actually might have the ever-so-slightly greater odds of finishing in front of Kleba, I think I'd rather have Maxi, just with the way I generally play a Roto League. 
especially in this short sample size, you you can't afford to have even one game from Hardaway where he goes four for 20. It, it's crushing. We crush your team. So I like the maps. I think there's a lot of potential values there. I think Doncic is probably the only one on the team that doesn't end up as a good draft value heading into this resumption. Let's talk Memphis Grizzlies. Let's talk Memphis Grizzlies because I think they had a season that uh, perhaps people aren't fully aware uh, exactly of who had what value. And what I mean by that is, if I just said to you, Memphis Grizzlies, who is the most interesting player on the team? I'm guessing a lot of folks would say John Morant or Jaron Jackson Jr. Neither one of those guys was the highest ranked player on the team. And John Morant was actually not even inside the top 125 for the year. And he really didn't have any stretches where he was inside the top 125. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to take him off the list. He's going to get drafted earlier than I would ever consider taking him. And so I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm not going to worry about it. What I'd like to do and what I think we should do most of the time is look at what guys were doing over the last roughly four or five weeks before the shutdown. Because for Memphis, they had moves at the All-Star break that changed who was playing how many minutes. And so during that this late-season stretch, Memphis became a big-man-heavy roster in terms of actual fantasy value. The easy one, and the one that's just always one of our favorites, is Jonas Valanciunas, who was right around the top 50 for the season, right around the top 50 over the last 25 games Memphis played. And there's no reason to think he moves off of those numbers now. Almost nothing that happened this year changed what he was doing on a game-to-game basis. Almost nothing. He was just like right around 27, 28, 29 minutes almost every single night. Double-digit points, double-digit rebounds. Sometimes he'd float himself into a little bit of a block and a little bit more. Great field goal percent, uh, decent volume. Free throw numbers were oddly low this year, so he even could have been higher. And then if you take out 27% roughly of the teams in front of JV, his top 50 becomes more like top 36-ish. 36, 37. So there's a very real chance that JV is an inside-the-top-40 guy during this resumption era, Uh, and I think that's probably where he gets drafted. I I feel like people now have seen what he's doing. He's a very predictable asset. Jaron Jackson Jr. is a less predictable asset because he had stretches this year where he was flat-out brilliant. He had stretches this year where he was flat-out horrible. When it all averaged together, he finished at number 66. He's still a unique talent in the NBA because he's sort of Kristaps light blocks and threes, but he doesn't rebound like Porzingis. I mean, he's not nearly as big. Kristaps has him by quite a lot. Doesn't score as much because, well, this team spreads things around a little bit more. Uh, but the blocks and the three-pointers, there are there are comparisons there. The field goal percent may be a little bit better for JJJ. Free throw percent a little bit better for someone like KP. So we understand the upside, and we understand why everybody is constantly hunting Porzingis. And we understand why folks are hunting JJJ. I just I think he's going to go earlier than I'm willing to take him again. Although I do think he's going to be fine. I have no idea. He, there's there's such a wide window of where he could end up this year. I mean, he had a one-month stretch where he was posting top 25 numbers. What if that happens for eight games? It could. But most of the year, 
he was back in that 75 range. And I think that's where you just have to assume. I mean, if someone's there for most of the time, that's the assessment we have to make going into the draft. Say, okay, well, that's where he was most of the time. So that's where we should assume he'll probably spend his time now. If he was a top 75 guy for 80% of the year and a top 25 guy for 20% of the year, there's still a 20% chance that he's a top 25 guy. But you go with the odds. You play the odds. Perhaps the name on this team that's the most interesting is Brandon Clark because he had a ton of buzz coming into the season. He was going way early during drafts back in October of last year which was a real shame because I know we were trying to target him at Hoopball and he just kept getting pushed up the list. And he had, by all accounts, a good fantasy season, but not a loud fantasy season. He was top 80 for the year, 12 points, six boards, a little less than a block, 62% from the field, 79% at the free throw line, almost no turnovers. It was a very good fantasy season everything about that was helpful but there was nothing that was loud about it his best category was field goal percent and nobody pays attention to that unless you're doing something else like DeAndre Jordan everybody was looking back in the day you were like oh well he's a rebounding field goal percent guy because you were like oh he's getting 13 rebounds 14 rebounds a game and then bonus he's shooting almost 70 percent from the field Rudy Gobert, one of his best stats is field goal percent. But the only reason we notice it is because he has 14 rebounds and two blocks a game. Brandon Clark, he had the field goal percent. Far and away his best category. Massive positive impact there. But I don't think anybody was really paying attention to it because his rebounds were average. His blocks were average. Free throw percent was average. Scoring was a little bit sub-average. Turnovers were nice, but nobody pays attention to those. So, top 80, and again, now we, we do our calculation on the fly, about 21, 22 teams, or 22 players, I should say, should come off the board in front of him. Brandon Clark, with these same exact numbers during the resumption era, could be more like a top 60 guy. I don't think he goes there. I think people are going to be hunting dudes in that range. And we have to remember that everything is going to shift forward. So, 12 and 6... With okay everything and great field goal percent, might be a top 60 player right now. It's going to be weird. And then John Morant. You know, 18 points, 7 assists, a steal, all that, 49% from the field. All that seems really good, but three-pointers low, steals pretty low, free throw percent not good, turnovers high. He's just not there yet. He's not there yet, especially on a good rebounding team. JV, Brandon Clark, JJJ. Some of the other guards are actually not terrible at rebounding. Last name I want to mention is Justice Winslow because there is a chance he comes back for this team. Guys, don't do not do it. Don't do this to yourself. And don't make me do this to you guys again. I don't know how many times we have to talk about it. Justice Winslow is not a nine-category asset. He's not. Even in his finest moments, you're still looking at Lance Stevenson with worse percentages. You know, he'd 12, 5, and 4. That sounds fine with a steal, but 43% from the field, 63% at the free throw line. He's a 64.5% career free throw shooter and a 41.5% career field goal guy who doesn't hit three-pointers, doesn't get many defensive stats unless he's playing 34 minutes a game. 
He's okay in that department, but not good. And so now you're, you're talking about exclusively rebounds and assists from a wing. That's all you're really getting there. Just don't do it. Don't do it. There's not enough. There's not enough there. Even if they gave him the minutes, he's still behind Morant and JJJ and JV in the pecking order. Not enough. And ugh, Dylan Brooks. I want to talk about running hot and cold. Dylan Brooks is running hot and cold. He is one of the worst field goal percent guys in the NBA. You're never going to get me over that hump. I don't care if he's scoring 22, 23 points a game. If he's doing on 39% shooting, I'm not about that. Not going to do it. To quote the old Dana Carvey skit. Not going to do it. How are we doing on time? All right, let's move into the next one. The Portland Trailblazers. We started to talk about them just a couple of minutes ago because Trevor Reza is not with the club. And that removes one of their really nice fantasy assets. But the question now for Portland becomes, what is Zach Collins going to be? First of all, Damian Lillard is going to be awesome. He should probably be drafted inside the top four or five, at least. But we don't need to spend a whole bunch of time on that. Uh, Carmelo Anthony is not a nine-category guy. C.J. McCollum, you know, you take his normal 60-some-odd rank and remove the 27% of teams in front of him, and and I think you've got a pretty good guess there. So it's going to come down to the big men, because I'm not all that interested in guys who might be filling in on the wing from time to time. Dame, C.J. are in. Melo is out for me. Not interested. Even for the entire season, Carmelo really wasn't enough to get you there, and then lately he was even worse. Ariza was actually playing pretty well with Portland. Hassan Whiteside was playing extraordinarily well for Portland. He was number uh, 11 over the season's last two months. He was inside the top 10 for the entire year. A magical season that Sean posts 16 points, 14 boards, three blocks a game on 62% shooting from the field and a palatable 68% at the free throw line. I am of the opinion that Zach Collins probably ends up playing center. Not exclusively, but enough to where I don't know how Hassan Whiteside continues to play 31 minutes a game. I would have put my foot into that theory a lot harder if Ariza was still with the club. Because if Trevor's there, he's playing the three. Mello's taking a lot of the four. Collins takes some four, a decent chunk of the five, and Whiteside, there's no other place he can go. He just gets squeezed out of six, seven minutes. With Ariza gone and everybody forced to move down the order a little bit and just go big, it's possible that we still see Whiteside post 28, 29 minutes a game simply because they just don't really have the horses to move Collins to the five and move Melo back to the four. But they might not have a choice, especially if they end up making the playoffs somehow. If they, if they end up in a play-in, if they end up somehow making it, and they've got to deal with all sorts of weird roster constructions from opponents, you can't just go giant all the time. I know Zach Collins can move on the perimeter a little bit better than Whiteside can, but, I mean, is that really... Is that really a matchup you want? Collins, who's not a, an offensive force, so it's not like he can go around to the other side of the court and just beat up on tiny power forwards, at least not yet. 
in his career. But faster power forwards should be able to take advantage of Portland if they go giant. So you'll probably see times where they just can't go as big as they want. They move Collins to the five or white side of the five. One of those two guys gets aced out for a few minutes and they go to a uh, Gary Trent at the three or uh, Nasir Little at the three or Anthony Simons even if they wanted to go real small and play McCollum at the three. And this is why I'm a little bit worried about some of these assets on Portland. It's why I don't think I'm going to pick up Zach Collins unless he falls to the end of these resumption drafts just to sort of take a flyer on him. He never really shown me the consistency we needed. And even in the games this year before he got hurt, he didn't really do anything. He's not a high usage guy, so you need blocks and you need percentages. And Whiteside's never going to let him get those things if he's playing the five. Whiteside likely takes a step back during this resumption period. He's going to get drafted really early because of how good he was during the regular season. And so then you're left basically saying, where does Zach Collins go? If it's really, really late, we take a shot on him. Where does Whiteside go? It's probably going to be a little bit too early, given the fact he almost has nowhere to go but down. Does Damian Lillard fall past, say, the top five? Who do we even think could go in front of him at this point? AD, Harden, and Giannis? Not Cat, he's not playing. Not Kyrie, he's not playing. Kawhi? Aren't people worried about missed games here? He's a possibility, I guess. I just almost don't see any way that Damian Lillard falls outside the top five during this resumption draft. Get him while he's hot, man. There's there's a very reasonable chance that Damian Lillard is the number two player in this resumption eight-game stretch, if he just goes bananas. Now, here's the fear with Portland. What if they come out? They're three and a half games in Memphis right now. What if they come out and they lose their first two games of, of the resumption season? You might see Damon CJ hang it up two, three games to go. And for that reason... I don't think you necessarily need to draft these other guys like Anthony Simons or Gary Trent. You probably would need to draft Mello. Someone's going to take him because that's how things go. But he might also shut it down if they get eliminated. This is a team kind of like the Lakers on the other side where if they pull far enough away early in the this eight-game stretch that you might see... What do we talk about? JaVale McGee, Dwight Howard, those types of guys step into Anthony Davis's juicy role, and we've already seen that they're functional with it. With Portland, if, if Dame and CJ shut it down, you make a mad dash to the waiver wire, and you start picking up all these weirdo backups. I think I'd go Simons, maybe over Trent, if only because I think if all those guys were getting big minutes, Simons is probably going to chew up the most usage among them. Hell, you might even see a Mario Hazonia sighting at some point. But again, I don't think you need to draft those guys. Someone might draft Simons. Twitter was trying to jam him down my throat this year, and I just kept telling you guys it wasn't happening yet. He played in all 65 games for the Blazers. So, I, I mean, I know they like him, but as the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh option or whatever he was for stretches this year, it wasn't going to be a thing. If he comes out, everybody else is shut down, and he's the number one guy. This is why I don't really like the idea of playing guys that are going to post value kind of near that 100 to 120 range because 
by the fifth or sixth game, even if it's only the last two, even if Dame and CJ play the first six, Portland is basically eliminated, then they shut it down. It's also possible that they're the team that's hanging on right behind Memphis. And so maybe there is some kind of weird little play-in situation. If they stay close and New Orleans and Sacramento fall back, or San Antonio falls back, maybe they do play all eight. So I don't think there's anything that's a guarantee with this team, and it's why I don't think I would use roster slots on those backups the same way I would use roster slots on Lakers backups, because on that team, it's just a matter of time. You know, three, two, three, four games. At some point, they're going to win enough to where home court is wrapped up, whatever the hell that means. It's not even home court. It's just the number one seed. They get an easier draw by a lot, actually, in the Western Conference. You stay in that one spot. You avoid the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Rockets, the Mavs right now, the way things are currently set up. And then some of those teams could move around. So, you know, don't get me wrong on that front. But you get Memphis in the first round, which is far and away the easiest matchup. Or, you know, whether it's Portland or New Orleans or Sacramento, whoever sneaks in there, you'd far rather have any of those teams over Dallas or Houston or even OKC. Although I think there's a a certain measure of of non-fear with the Thunder, but again, point for another day. So that's why I don't think I'm drafting these backups on Portland. I don't think it's guaranteed that they get playing time. I think the Blazers, you know, we, we heard from Dame. He really wanted an opportunity to come back and try to push his team towards the playoffs. So he and CJ are going to go nuts for at least the first probably five or six games. Uh, I think they're going to play teams where they want it more. So that might allow them to pick up some wins and hang in there. So I think I would treat Dame the way I treated him during the regular season. I think he's a good pick to take early. CJ, similar. Whiteside, I think you let him fall a little bit, see what happens. Collins, I'd likely avoid him until relatively late. Mello, I don't think I'm drafting him at all. Ariza's not going. And then in terms of Simons, Gary Trent, Mario Hazonia, Nasir Little, I'm not drafting those guys. I'd rather scoop them. Honestly, if the Blazers lose their first game, even, of the resumption era, I might think about grabbing one of those guys. Because right out of the shoot, one game in, if Portland loses, Memphis, New Orleans, and Sacramento all win, suddenly the Blazers now are no longer tied for that spot chasing Memphis. They're a game back of two teams and a four and a half game back of the team they'd be trying to chase with seven to go. If Portland loses their first game, I would start thinking about picking up guys like Simons or Trent. But as it stands right now, I don't think I'm drafting them. I think I'd rather give it a day. Because if they win that first game... Every game they win is just more fuel for the Dame and CJ will make it all eight camp. Maybe they will. Oh boy, we're not getting through this as fast as I wanted to. New Orleans, Sacramento, San Antonio, and Phoenix tomorrow. We'll finish up the Western Conference uh, on our Wednesday show. Thursday, we'll move into the Eastern Conference. Probably going to have a mailbag at some point here in the next, maybe later this week or early next. So stay tuned for that post that would be coming on Twitter. Oh, and do check out our uh, brand new revamped Instagram page. It's Hoopball Official on Instagram. Hoopball Official on Instagram. If you kids out there are using the gram, I don't know what I'm talking about over here. Hoopball Official on Instagram. Hoopball Hoops is our Facebook page. We got cool stuff going on over there. The great Lyle Swithenbank has 
Saturday Night Lyle, a live show every Saturday on our Facebook page exclusively for HoopBall's Facebook followers. So a lot of good stuff going on. In addition to our Twitter, we've got social media coming out of our ears. Uh, again, once once more, hit me up if you want to be part of our sales or DFS team at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter. And stay tuned. News breaking throughout the day these days. We must be in countdown mode. 37. Have a great Tuesday. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.